Apologies for the longer than average musical interlude. I planned my gym excursion a little too close to my call-in obligations. Just needed some time to dry off, (laughs) Uh, change clothes, and get ready for what I know is going to be an excellent episode because we're talking about an excellent episode that you lot had a lot to say about. Of course, we're talking about the recent premium episode of Bad Faith Podcast with Professor Christine Liu, uh, who is a film studies professor, but who is probably known best on the left for her analysis and critique of the professional managerial class. Now, I want to apologize up front for not defining PMC in the episode. I felt like we had talked about it with Pascal Robert. I feel like it's very much discussed kind of like on the online Jacobin left but I betrayed my own value of making sure that everything is really legible and not just geared to an online audience. So my apologies. I want to first just clarify that we're talking about a kind of petite, petite bourgeois, petty bourgeois class of folks. I would include folks like myself who have been to college, I think uh, particularly kind of elite colleges as Professor Liu describes it. Um, and who are often in this position politically where they believe that they have very big brains and consequently think that people like Elizabeth Warren are more capable than people like Bernie Sanders who embrace a kind of technocratic mindset 
et cetera, that often ends up derailing less movements in the way that we saw in 2016 and 2020. And the question that I had principally for Professor Liu, because of the level of her critique of the PMC, is whether or not we sometimes take it too far, given the somewhat hypocritical position that both she and I are in of being members of said class. Do we not, should we not in our discourse allow for class traders are people who might belong to that class but understand the limits of it, especially since the social contract is so broken that even people who are elites uh, by a, le- a relative metric, even if they might technically still be in the 99%, are feeling like the value of their college degrees aren't met. This entire millennial class that feels like doesn't feel like quite literally is the first generation to do worse than the generation before them and on and on and on. And looking at certain historical examples like France 68, where the uprising was led in large part by students who were joined by factory workers, many of whom were their parents because they were first generation uh, PMC, first generation petty bouge. Um, given those historical examples, should we close the door? Should we be so hostile to the PMC? So that was the central organizing question of that episode, but we also ended up talking about a range of other interesting topics, namely, principally, I think most cancelably, what the left's immigration policy affirmatively actually looks like. So the left, much like liberals, can do a pretty good job of saying what they don't want to do, especially when you can point to figures like Trump or the Republican Party at large. Oh, it's, you know, it's bad that there are all these deportations. The left will say, oh, it's bad that Obama de- deported more people um, than anyone in history during his tenure. Um, obviously, building a wall, Trump's immigration policies, and we'll, on the left will also critique Biden's uh, continuation of Trump's immigration policies. But while it's very easy to say what you don't like, you know, hashtag abolish ICE, I think sometimes the left fails in not offering a affirmative and affirmative prescription for what they would like to see. And that becomes more difficult, right? Because people like Christine Liu will say, well, the left shouldn't be for open borders. Bernie has said this as well, that it's a coke brothers plot, um, you know, that brings down the cost of labor in the United States and is an anti-labor policy, you know. And then there, at the same time, the left is constantly engaged in conversations about America's duty to immigrants and the globe as a whole because of our role in driving the climate crisis, which has created so many climate migrants in uh, our hundreds of years of imperialist ventures that have interfered in the workings of countries that have created a political immigration crisis all over the world and on and on and on. So is there a tension between saying we're not for open borders? Okay. Well, if you actually come up with a metric for what would allow someone to quote unquote deserve entry into America, and that metric had something to do with acknowledging the root causes of so much immigration as a consequence of American imperialism, and pollution, then wouldn't that effectively lead us to a place where the borders are basically open because everyone has a legitimate claim to America since so much of our wealth is stolen? And so we started having that conversation, and I hope to continue it on another podcast episode with some immigration experts and some folks like Angela Nagel, who I know have talked about this issue before, controversially. Uh, I see people are already in the queue, so I will not bother playing a clip from the episode. I'll just start taking callers. Andrew, you're up first. What's on your mind? Hey, um, good to hear you. I think uh, I'll just really quickly, very briefly say about the PMC talk about, because um, kind of in the episode description, is it worth the trouble um, to try to recruit class traders? 
Um, I guess it depends how much effort you're really talking about, but I guess just based off of numbers, I don't really think so. Um, the non-voting um, voting age population in the U.S. is far larger than either of the now 100-plus-year-old hegemonic parties. Um, and then also the political independents who do vote are larger than either of those parties as well. Um, so I think just from a numbers game, you're probably going to end up um, netting a lot more support for a mutual aid project or even an electoral project if you're really trying to speak to people who um, either don't really vote or don't concern themselves too much with um, playing team team sports uh, politics. Um, and then the uh, immigration question, I guess I won't um, – elaborate really long because I hadn't thought about this at all until you just now said it, but I'm right now in Mexico. I just moved here. Um, and if you're flying to uh, Mexico and you you fill out your very short immigration form on the plane, chances are you can stay here for uh, six months or 180 days pretty much without having to fill out any additional paperwork. You can't really work, I suppose, formally doing that. Um, so that might be something I would change from their policy and say that there should be a really easy, low barrier um, pathway for people to come to, whether it's the United States or another real country, or if we're just imagining here, um, you, you should have, be able to come here and work uh, very readily. Because I think, and I've heard Matt Taibbi talk about this a lot, that pretty much in a large enough country, the economy, quote unquote, is large enough that it could theoretically absorb a huge amount of people, way more than we taken even in years where it's not so sparse like under Biden's administration where we're leaving out leaving on the table a hundred plus thousand work visas unfilled. So anyways, I'll shut up. Um no, don't waste too much time, but yes, accept class traders where they make themselves available, but I wouldn't spend the bulk of your time doing it. All right. So Andrew, let's let's take that on. You hit me with some numbers, I'm gonna hit you back with some numbers. But seniors were the largest voting population uh, historically, and I'm looking at some numbers from 2018 that said 64% of seniors voted in 2018. That's midterms. 64% of seniors voted. We have 22% of all voters in 2020 were seniors. That's just people over 65 years of old. Now, I'm talking about seniors because my suspicion, and this is anecdotal, is that this is kind of the class that we're talking about when we're talking about PMC. We're talking about the last generation boomers who did well, who were served well by the social contract, who are homeowners, who have a lot of uh, class-based material reasons not to subscribe to a quote-unquote far-left agenda. And because we don't reach out to that group at all, I think Bernie got like single digits in seniors, and Trump was successful in large part because he was able to secure a majority of the senior vote, we lose out. So while we can parse the numbers and say that there are tons of non-voters. Absolutely, we should mobilize non-voters, but we all know historically how much more difficult it is to get someone who's never voted before to vote than to get someone who has voted before to vote. And additionally, there are they happen to comprise a, a group of people who votes frequently and also should be able to be met by a lot of the prescriptions coming out of the left in terms of uh, Medicare for all, expanding dental, hearing, and vision, all of those kinds of things. Seniors having the largest, being the largest growing population um, with student debt, with Social Security checks, 
um, garnished and stuff. So I just, I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing or taking a position here. But I would like to point out that oftentimes people like to talk very cavalierly about all of these non-voters that are going to suddenly materialize out of the ether. When a lot of non-voters are non-voters for a reason. They've been historically disenfranchised. They aren't able to take time off work, even though that's against the law. All the, all the reasons that we know and pointed to when we looked at the low youth turnout and low working class and poor turnout for Bernie in 2016 and 2020 that ultimately damned his chances. Now, that's not to say it cannot be done. But I do think there's something a little premature about saying we're going to leave all of the voters who already vote, who are disproportionately PMC, disproportionately more affluent on the table and pretend we're not going to talk to them when I would guess, I would hazard a guess that most of the people on this call right now are actually members of the PMC. What do you make of that, Andrew? No, I definitely think that's a good analysis because, um, or at least a good retort, because a lot of times uh, I agree when you call it cavalier, people are like, ah, fucking don't bother with the, uh, the voters. Uh, they're already decided when actually you and I spoke maybe, I don't know, a couple months ago, very briefly when Nathan Robinson was on about how a lot of people actually aren't that firm in their political beliefs. Mm. It's more of a social and a cultural, uh, affect um, but I guess I, I do still think, though, um, I did say like voting age population. I guess I guess maybe that's still doing the same uh, business that you were talking about, which is just immediately ignoring those people. But I'm not I'm not saying we shouldn't um, if say that we're speaking just from an electoral context. I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't craft uh, a policy platform that is going to attract people of a variety of um, kind of whatever income brackets or whatever you want to uh, however you want to identify people who are part of the PMC. Um, but like, for instance, I, I've spent a lot of time talking with my parents um, who I think sometimes have uh, take political stances that kind of uh, scare me a little bit. And uh, if they weren't my family, I probably wouldn't spend a whole lot of time um, really trying to persuade them because uh, they consume a media diet um, that is so different from what I do and, and oftentimes is kind of source free. Uh, but even so it's still so hard to kind of steer them around, even on a subject that seems like it would be really easy. Um, and even if we find some kind of accord, which is pretty common actually, uh, then it becomes sort of a argument over, well, is that ever going to be worth my time to do anything about it? I don't see myself having any political agency, besides voting. So I'm just going to keep voting for the choices that are available to me that I think, or I've been told are viable. So I guess like, so, so isn't that an argument not for, you know, ignoring or dismissing the PMC or principally talking about them in the way that we tend to do on the left when this, this kind of absolutist, you know, almost um, deplorable is adjacent terms (laughs) or, Is that an argument for changing the media climate? Is that an argument for addressing voter apathy, which is something shared across class lines and was what motivates a lot of non-voters to stay non-voters, that same nothing I do is going to change anything? And isn't that an, an argument for uh, investing more in plausible, credible third-party candidates so people who are feeling really um, disgruntled with the two-party system have some place constructed to put their energy um, well, totally. I, I guess I, I, I didn't want to conflate those things. I, I'm down for, um, the mutual aid unionist approach. I think that we're sorely lacking in that in the United States and probably most co- Western countries, especially, 
Um, but I'm also completely open to uh, a third party. Um, I, I also mentioned a, a few weeks ago when we talked just briefly about Morena or Morena in Mexico. Mexico does have a different uh, political climate than we do. Before Morena was around, while there were decades of neoliberal um, you know, thievery selling out all of the all, every single possible public service in the country, there were still some left opposition parties that existed. They weren't um, able to prevent a lot of the sort of destruction of the um, the positive social aspects of the state, but they did still exist. Um, but basically, when I spoke really recently to somebody from Morena about like, hey, what do you, do you think um, you could find someone for us to talk to or? Um, what are your lessons you would give us? How did you start the party? They basically, their first question was, is it legal to start a new party in the, the U S like they weren't under the impression it was legal because mm. the Democrats and Republicans <laughs> have been in power for so long, but I was like, Oh yeah, it's legal. Um, so I guess what, if we were talking about ballot initiatives and we were reaching voters and non-voters and saying, we're going to make it so that if you vote, it actually kind of matters. And we just go state by state ballot initiative for ranked choice and, uh, equal access to the airwaves or things like that. I'm totally, I'm down for that too. And I guess when I, when I hear the term PMC, um, I think there's a lot of people who are kind of um, tricked into aligning with them in such a way that they think this is going to be better for me and my family in the long term. But I guess um, actually Lewis Rossman is a, a person who's not entirely political. He's kind of the right to repair guy from New York. He's a tech repair dude. Um, but he said that he's decided to start his own business when he realized after 2008 that he wasn't getting stability from a job where he did, he wasn't fulfilled personally. And so he decided mm -hmm. to go out on a limb when he realized, well, I'm not getting stability anyways. So I guess kind of taking that approach, I'm not going to brand everybody who makes more than 80 or $100,000 PMC. But if we're talking about someone who like, really, truly doesn't have the class interest to even support a project that's expanding Medicare for seniors, then I would say if they happen to come around because we're working on the media climate or whatever, cool. But I guess when we're talking about outreach, um, ground game, how, how much time are you going to spend at somebody's door if you knock on their door and they're like super opposed, that type of stuff? That's where I would say just cut your losses um, if it's if it's not worth your time but i'm not saying it's never worth the time to reach yeah. out yeah Th thank you for that andrew brain. yeah i don't mm. actually think we're talking about um what happens when we're at a door or where uh, what percentage of money is spent trying to target said voters although i absolutely think it was negligent not to be targeting seniors when there are so many policies that do target seniors and i just want to point to you know the language you just used about people whose class interests don't align with the project my frustration is that people who are being described as PMCs, class interests do align with the project because the system has failed to such a degree. We're sitting here talking about, you know, policies like student debt cancellation. We're talking about seniors and Medicare expansion. We're talking about a country where 40% of the population can't afford a $400 emergency. And many people in those 40% are people with college degrees. And the other point I would, I would just point to in, the, in your last comment is that you're, you reference, you know, these numerical cutoffs for income as how to describe PMC. But, you know, as we talked about in the episode, that's not really how these things go, right? PMCs include adjunct professors making $50,000 a year and they exclude electricians making $80,000, $90,000 a year. And so partly my frustration is that these 
lines are used to exclude more than they are to include, and they seem to be anti-solidaristic in some metric. And it feels like there's a version on the left of what happens on the right, where you, they talk about elitists and college-educated people as the enemy. And, and on the left, it, it bristles and rubs me even the wrong way more so because the people who are making those kind of comments so often belong to that class. I mean, so does like Tucker Carlson or whatever. But like, there's something that feels really odd to me to have a bunch of PMCs sitting around laughing and snarking about PMCs all the time, while also not really acknowledging that the very pressures that drove them to the Bernie left could be operating more broadly. And the issue isn't that people's class class interests are out of alignment, but there's some really important messaging um, and indoctrination that's going on with the mass media that, you know, Andrew, you referenced early on that your parents are consuming every day and that maybe our focus should be a little bit less, you know, the issue is your, is the class status in the instance where the class status does make you vulnerable in ways that make you a good coalition partner in some ways, if not always. Now, I don't want to, that to say that, we shouldn't have a lot of skepticism and you all shouldn't have plenty of skepticism directed toward me and members of the PMC when those issues are out of alignment. And that's part of why I appreciate the show because folks who are not in my, you know, bubble are able to call in and say, Hey, I feel a little differently about this, that, and the other issue. You know, I I had a good talk with uh, my cousin when I was in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago who, you know, drives alcohol deliveries and was saying, yeah, I feel some kind of way about student debt. And we were able to have a really constructive conversation. So I appreciate you and all of that. I'm going to take uh, Johanna's the next caller. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, Bree. How are you? I'm doing quite well. A little out of breath still. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Managing. Very, very, very good. What did you do for your workout? Okay, look. I don't know if it's New Year's resolutions <laughs> or what, but now usually I go down to my building's gym and there's no one in there and I feel oh, yeah. pretty COVID safe and fine. These last two days I've gone downstairs and all of the treadmills have been taken up and I am resentful. <laughs> oh yeah. See. So I had to do like 20 minutes of elliptical before this young woman got off of the treadmill and then I just ran a quick speedy mile. Um, and then it was uh, seven minutes till 6 p.m. And I ran upstairs, hopped in the shower and got on the mic. Yeah, you're going to be waiting for that February drop off like the rest of us. <laughs> so that's the name of the game. So um, what's on I your mind this couple, evening? Yeah. With, yeah, I have a couple of things. Um, Day and I, um, who's actually in the queue today, we're talking about this sort of theme that keeps coming up with you about things that are missing from the left movement. Mm. And so we are wondering, like, could you give us a top 10 or a top 20 of, of those things? Um, I, or, you know, or I could comb back through lots of bad faith podcasts and some of these call in episodes and compile a list myself. But if there's anything that's really on your mind about really crucial things that are missing from the left movement, um, I'd love to hear those oh, compiled. Goodness. You're just asking me to write a whole song on the spot. That's what you're asking me to do. I mean, not on the spot, but you know <laughs> what I'm saying. Like, you know. Look, I, I don't know about 10, but top of the list would definitely be having an independent and coordinated left media infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So I would really love, you know, it was just the year anniversary of Force the Vote. I would love to be able to sit down with some of the people who are on the other side of that issue and talk through our mis- our you know disagreements the way I was able to with people like Ryan Grimm earlier in this year. Um, mm-hmm. I know that everyone is not going to be so amenable, but I think it is really worthwhile to do an accounting of those kinds of things, if only because when there is a moment, if we do get, let's say, a left challenger to Joe Biden, 
uh-huh. in 2024. I don't want there to be a bunch of infighting about how, oh, you can't trust so-and-so and so-and-so's a grifter and this faction of the left is behind that person. So I'm going to get behind Justin Amish or whatever the hell ends up <laughs> happening because you know what's going to happen. Some big brain, I'm so smart, I've done the numbers, is going to sit there and, um, you know, probably so discord over a candidate that could, you know, probably is the one that has more like natural energy behind them. Just it forced the vote as any indication. And so I would like to be in a place where we could hash some of that stuff out early in the game before that candidate gets to a point where they really need our support in a national mm-hmm. um, space. Yep. Um, I also think that it would behoove the left to have generally speaking a more um, kind of compassionate spiritual, for lack of a better word, energy. And yes. You know, I you know, if you reflect on other periods of time and you reflect on the sixties and you reflect on the role that, you know, literal religious institutions have played in social justice movements. I'm I'm an agnostic. I, you know, was not raised religious, so this is not coming from a proselytization place. But, you know, it's January, it's bleak times, it's Omicron, it's isolation, and you can feel the isolation in the like panic online. You can feel people's mental health slipping. You can feel people feeling despondent. You you, you see it. I, I was l- looking at Bree Newsom's tweets, you know, those last couple of days and thinking like that is very relatable. It feels like a kind of spiraling and despondency and people have given up making arguments for what should be done. And then instead are just kind of waving the panic flag, like saying, this is bad. This is we're crashing. We're crashing. And it feels like that energy could still be more constructively channeled if people had some more faith in each other and I don't blame them for not having it because LOL, everything that's happened, but we, we need some, we need something central. We need a central organizing figure. We need a central institutional body. We need something that um, membership of it makes you feel solidarity with folks, even folks with whom you disagree. So that's just two, but those are the two that I think of on a daily basis. That is great information. And yes, um, there was another thing that I wanted to talk about, and that was that Catherine uh, sort of plugged the Pruitt-Igo myth. Um, Mm. Did you watch that yet? I did not. Girl, listen. So first of all, I've been obsessed with Pruitt and Igo since I was like a teenager, and I saw Koyani Scotsi, which is like a Philip Glass score film full of odd imagery and they actually show the dem- the demolition of uh, Pruitt and Igo and it's very very haunting but the documentary man i mean it wasn't so much just about like public housing it, it was about how like there were slums and of course it was black people living in the slums and they wanted to clean up the slums so to revitalize the downtown area then they you know, put these huge tower blocks up, this public housing, you know, you couldn't have any men there. And um, all the maintenance was supposed to be from, you know, rent. And Mm -hmm. when white flight happened, you know, there went the center of St. Louis's economic engine, basically. So no work equals no maintenance. And then, you know, everything kind of went to shit. Mm -hmm. And They didn't fix the economic problems that actually led to, you know, the the, the slums being there in the first place. And they literally just moved these people and didn't solve and didn't solve anything. And then so that whole thing deteriorated. And of course, they blamed it on them and they blamed it on the architecture of all things, which I will say that 
once things kind of went to shit, it did exasperate it. But man, it it's heartbreaking and an incredible story and something I think that everyone here should watch. So, okay, well, I definitely while you were talking, I pulled it up in a tab, which is how I substitute for having very bad RAM myself as a human being. (laughs) And I will definitely be following up. And I will say that I was first introduced to some of these kind of urban planning aspects of, you know, how building design affects community behavior and the success of some of these public housing efforts in a Uh class taught by Lonnie Guineer, my first year of law school. So I did want to take the opportunity to, um, you know, get make note of and more in her passing. She was one of the most formative um, professors I've ever had at any stage of my education. And for those of you who haven't listened uh, to an episode from a few months ago with her son, and a, he who was a, also a professor at Harvard Law now, and who was on the Joe Biden panel about court reform, which was mm. complete throwaway like they weren't taking it seriously but he took it seriously we had a we had two people from the joe biden administration's panel plus professor eric siegel who is now i think a three-time um guest on bad faith podcast who's excellent debating what court reform should look like and it's probably a good time to go and listen to that if you haven't already but thank you so much jahan for all your always insightful comments and uh keep the faith absolutely brie good to good to talk to you all right take care you too All right, Tom, what's on your mind? Hi, how are you? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? Good. I'm good. Um, I I look at, I don't really, the professional management class to me seems like the people who consume, you know, like MSNBC, CNN, and maybe, you know, Fox News. And I don't see them as being very populist or very, you know, I see them as being more like conservative in a way, you know, they, you know, I think they voted for Biden this time around. They were afraid of the pandemic, things like that. And, you know, I think that like Trump, he brought a lot of new voters in. That's how he, I think he got elected. And I think Obama the same way, didn't he? I mean, a lot of people never voted before voted for Barack Obama. And a lot of people voted for Trump, never voted before, I think. I think if someone in the chat can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you looked at the polls, Trump voters were just Republicans. Trump, Trump People wanted to make them into something new and special, but Trump voters were just Republicans. And while there were this cohort of Obama to Trump voters, obviously if they had not been Obama to Trump voters. If they had been Obama to Hillary voters, we would not have gotten Trump. You know, that was a, still a pretty small sliver. And at the end of the day, when we're talking about these slim margins of victory, at the the overwhelming majority of these people are just your plain old everyday average Republican, the same people who voted for Reagan and the same people who voted for Romney and the same people who voted for Donald Trump, you know? And so you can say that these people are the people who watch Fox News and MSNBC, but if we're really yeah. just saying is that PMC are everybody who votes <laughs> – that it does once again bring us to this place where I'm I'm not saying these people it's not difficult to reach these people for the institutional reasons that we've described, but saying that we're not gonna try when even winning to the point about Trump's victory, even winning a small sliver of a population that typically doesn't vote for the left, go with the left, would could mean electoral victory. Yeah, go ahead. Well I think okay. Well I think the media too, like you say we need a an organized left wing media or you know, or an organized alternative media we don't have that i think the left is more fractured than it's ever been i mean i don't see them i mean i to me i think that you know i think an easy 
in two years, how are we going to get anywhere? I mean, I think the Republicans are going to win in 2022. And then I think Ron DeSantis will be the president in 2024. Let me ask you this, Tom. Is there a candidate you can imagine? Is there a public figure, political or otherwise, that you think the left, including some members of the PMC, could rally behind? Well, I told you last time it was you. Okay. (laughs) Or Glenn Greenwald. I don't see it. No, I don't. I I guess someone today was talking about, um, I'm not even sure who he is. I know who he looks like. He's a big guy from Pennsylvania, I think. He's going to run for Senate. Fetterman, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I don't don't even know who he is. I'm pretty politically involved. I I do know who he is, but, you know, it's like I don't see anyone from the left or even, you know, or or even the establishment Democrats. They're going to get wiped out i mean, I, I can't see How it any you, other way unless somebody really did come up and like i said before you need a populist but well, i don't how, know what would you how would you feel you guys i want you to like stretch your imaginations a little bit like let's let's get our you know our star trek vibes on oops nope that's not the right one <laughs> and really and really think big like the the sky is the limit like what if it were you know Chris Hedges running. What if it were? Well, that would be awesome. I would vote for him. Some, you know, I would probably give all my money to him too. I would do everything I could for someone like that. But I mean, I don't think Chris Hedges wants to run for president. Personally. Well, nobody, nobody decent would. <laughs> no, I'm That's kidding. I'm problem kidding. too. But you know, I, I do think. I mean, there were these draft, uh, draft Warren campaigns in 2016. Draft Tulsi. Obviously, people have had these moments, and some of those campaigns have resulted in people running for president. And so, I would, I would hope that the left, you know, were th- would be thinking very critically about that right now. The same way that Justice Democrats ostensibly took it upon themselves to find candidates, you know, bartenders, even people who had no political experience. Hey, go ahead. Oh, I. Uh, well, I mean, I think I, the Justice Democrats to me, I don't know. It doesn't. I mean, like I said, if you're going to run for Senate or Congress, I mean, you, you said you would run in the 13th. I think you should run in the 14th. Okay. All right. I'm, but Tom, did, let me ask you this. Did anybody here catch uh, Kyle Kalinske this afternoon dropped a video called Marianne Williamson versus Joe Biden in 2024? Did you catch that one? Yeah, I didn't catch that. But I mean, I, I like Marianne Williamson somewhat, but I think that she would be seen. I don't think she, I think she's, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't I, listened. Her, her tone comes across as elitist in a certain way to me. I don't know. And she's would very it, good. Without affect your willingness to vote for her personally? No, I would vote for her over any Republican. I'll tell you that. Um, but I wouldn't vote. I mean, I, I don't think she's going to chance. I think that, you know, like I said, I think DeSantis is going to win. I think he's going to show, I think he can easily beat Trump in a primary too. Because he can say, hey, I'm competent. Look at these guys. They're nothing. Tom, Tom, you think, hey, I'm competent is going to defeat Trump when he wiped out a field of 17 uh, relatively more competent? I don't like DeSantis personally, but I think that, you know, he seems somewhat more competent. He has a lot of, you know, he he was like early treatment, monoclonals, people like that. He's got some environmental things on his side, like you're saving the Everglades, things like that. And he has a certain competency. You know, and Trump didn't get anything done. I mean, he said, oh, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. He didn't get any of it done. And not that I wanted him to, but like immigration, all that, nothing. Okay, okay, wait a minute. Straw straw poll. I don't know what emojis are available, but give me a thumbs up if you think that DeSantis will beat Trump now. That's oh, wow. I, I there's no, okay, there's two. Okay, I saw like two or three. Okay, I see some thumbs down. Okay, give me a thumbs down if you think Trump will still win out with DeSantis, against DeSantis. 
Okay, it's I mixed. I think Trump in two years is not going to look good. It's mixed. All right. We'll see. I mean, we'll see if the man, I mean, I don't mean to be wishing, you know, physical harm on anybody, but like, we'll see if the man is standing no. <laughs> two years from now. We'll see, you know, we're just dealing with a, an older set here. I think, I think there's going to be some Trump fatigue anyhow. It, you know, there was at the end of 2020. I mean, you know, and I just think that, and plus I think that people want a younger candidate finally. I mean, Biden was going to remind them that we want a younger candidate. Well, I was listening to Pod Save because you know me, and they were talking about how um, it still seems that the Republican Republicans are seeking out and need Trump's endorsement in midterms, or if they don't need his endorsement, they at least need him to not to to come out against them. And that still is very much a fear that candidates have is getting on the wrong side of Trump, which suggests that he's still pretty politically influential. Of course, 2022 and 2024 aren't the same thing, but it's something to keep in mind. I agree. But I think that, like I said, I think that's because he's seen as a populist. I think that that appeals to a lot of people. And, and you don't think someone like, uh, you don't think someone like Marianne could pick up that, label as that kind of independent outsider the same way that trump did you know noting that of course trump is a billionaire and affluent and and a quote-unquote elitist in the same way that someone might try to tag marianne i i don't know i mean i think trump was i don't think she will be taken this seriously unfortunately by the media either i mean trump was a great thing for the media it was like money here we go we can and they propped him up just to make money and then he ended up being president I'm not going to do that with Marianne Williamson. But did you see her recent? Um, there was this recent hit that she did on uh, Fox. I forget which one. Oh, it was uh, Jesse Waters the other day. Did you catch that clip? Uh, I, I no, I think I saw something online and I, I skipped by it. But I was going to actually watch it, and I, I don't know what I got into. Something I know else. how it is. You know, that's why you got to keep these tabs open, Tom. You just got to keep all the tabs open. Well, thank you for calling in. I'm going to move through. This. But you have to run. I mean, and, and we right Tom, on this Tom, show. Tom, Tom. And, and reorganize it. I mean, seriously. I mean, who's going to take up the mantle? No one. And who has integrity? No one. I mean, really. Tom, and who's intelligent? I mean, Tom, you are you're such a dull. <laughs> but we're going to take we're going to table that one. But I appreciate you as always, Tom, for calling in and for your generous right. support. My I will sleep. My head will hit my pillow lighter tonight because of your accolades. <laughs> All right. Thank, Thank you, you very much. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, let's. Just, listen to a little bit of this because I didn't actually listen to the Kyle clip and I'm curious to see what his argument is. So here we go, everybody. I'm going to put it on double speed because we don't have have that. Marianne Williamson, who is really a darling of the left in many respects. We have a name that has now been floated to primary Joe Biden in 2024 that I wholly agree with. Um, and it's being floated in official quarters, too. So let's go ahead and take a look at this video, and then we'll come back and discuss. Senator Bernie Sanders, former campaign manager, predicts President Biden will face a progressive primary challenger in 2024. Those comments come as the president faces slumping poll numbers on his overall approval rating and on key issues like the economy and coronavirus. Correspondent Alexandria Hoff has the story tonight from Washington. The president has every intention of running for re-election. But he may be met with friendly fire. Former presidential campaign manager for Senator Bernie Sanders told Politico this week, quote, if nothing else, a progressive running who gets a lot of support will demonstrate that the ideas that the progressive movement embraces are, in fact, popular. In modern U.S. history, an incumbent president has never lost a primary nomination. But when the primary was competitive, it cost the sitting president. Presidents Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and George H.W. Bush were each challenged. And while they won the nomination, each lost the general election. As talk of a possible primary challenger has spread, progressive names have been floating around, like Nina Turner, former Ohio State senator, and former presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. With any campaign not likely to form until after the midterms, the Biden White House does have some time before they have to calculate real competition. So Nina Turner. She can very well win that congressional seat that she barely lost last time. She has the ability to do that. And if she were to run again, I think she should run for that. Um, now, there is a little bit of a paradox and a conundrum with running against Biden in a primary when he's an incumbent Democrat president. It's true to say that that never works. I tell you guys, it never works. It never works. You're never going to unseat an incumbent because what happens is partisanship kicks in on the next level. And you have basically Democrat voters fall in line like sheep, like lemming. And um, lemming? <laughs> Lemmings? You get the point. And um, you're just not going to unseat an incumbent president. It wouldn't work on the Republican side. It wouldn't work on the Democratic side. Um, you go into it kind of knowing that. 
But I will say this. If Marion Williamson runs, we absolutely change the conversation and the national dialogue and shift it back on the grounds where it should be, where we're talking about issues. We're talking about policy substance. We're pressuring Biden. All the pressure he's getting right now is from his right. Everybody in D.C. tells him, all his staffers, everybody he's surrounded by, oh, no, don't do that, we can't do that. Oh, no, don't do that, that's too bold. Oh, no, don't do that, that'll make your poll numbers go down, even though it would make the poll numbers go up if he did actual left-wing stuff. So all the pressure he feels is from the right. He needs to be reminded, no, the stuff the American people want are out here on the left, and you're having a skewed conversation in the Oval Office. And All right, well, you know, there's like eight more minutes of that you can listen to on the Internet, but uh, feel free to opine, you know, weigh in on what Kyle's arguing there, and, uh, of course, the episode with Catherine Lewin, anything else that's on your mind. Curious, you're up next, what's on your mind? Hey, Brianna, great to be here on on here with you and everyone. Thanks for the positive discourse and community. Uh, In regards to what Kyle just said, I think regardless of who the next leader on the left is or in general, they need to have immense pressure put on them by the base to actually support the issues that we care about. And there needs to be cross coalition building to actually make sure people even on the right who uh, when I was running for office in Maine for state house last election cycle uh, in my 20s, uh, inspired by Bernie and AOC and whatnot, not as much lately, but um, mm-hmm. but it's like we, we need people to still gather support. You know, I met people on the right who were like, you know, Trump's going to he said he wants to give us health care. He's so compassionate. And I'm like, OK, well, how is he going to do that? You know, and so in general, I think forming that cross coalition uh, power is going to be important regardless of who's in power. Um, in regards to what you were saying in terms of like a left wing media, uh, I do agree with you in many regards. When I ran for office, I was a clean election candidate. Um and I found a lot of criticism with that because, you know, I was publicly funded. Great. So was my opponent. I did run as a Democrat, though I was debating running as an independent. Very mm-hmm. frustrated with both parties. They're both corporatists. I could talk for a while about some stories I have. Rela- like, well, what what and, was this final straw in your decision to run as a, as a Democrat? Yeah, I mean, as the discourse goes on the left right now, it's like, do I stay in the system and change it from within, or do I go into a third party? I think both are important, like you were saying with Maryam. I think, of course, the pressure is very important. Um, But more important than even that, I think, is just being issue and solution-based. Like, I knocked on a thousand doors about, um, and I would ask people, I would say nothing about party, I would just ask them, what are the issues you believe are real or that are real in your life, and what are the solutions that you have for them, or what are the things you want your public servants to act on in general? And it was amazing to witness what people said, and it was just a fascinating experience, but um, I found a lot of good like ability to talk with people about those issues and solutions and realize like okay well a left-wing media would be cool but even better in many ways would be if we just switch everything out of the two-party system and any party system and literally just talk and vote on issues and solutions and people only talk on an official medium and instead of hundreds of mailers going to us from people who apparently care about the environment and everything instead of all of that if we just had an official medium that distributed the candidate's exact position with their Again, the issues that they believe in that are real and the solutions that they want to help implement through their position of power and the actual way that they'll go about doing that. That's the like best direction, I think, for I mean, our country, a democracy, a society that wants to be healthy, right? So um, I do want to phrase this in a question for you, though. So one of the things when I was knocking on doors, people would say is, I'm against socialism. I don't want any socialism. I go, oh, okay, so... Are you against the military? Are you against police? Ironically, one of the communities I was seeking to represent disbanded their police force because they didn't want to pay for them. And this is a mm. right of red district. Mm. So if a lot of ironic and hypocritical stances and views that didn't always line up. But anyway, so like when I asked someone and they said the biggest thing they care about is socialism, getting socialism out. 
I would bring up the military and other you know, social security, these things that a lot of these people that were saying this do benefit from and, and support, right? So, and I found this amazing thing that the left could tap into. And I'll phrase this as a question for you. So, um, it's not Jeopardy. You can just no, no, okay. So no, no, exactly. so uh, in terms of building regional resilience, I view what we need to do in terms of our global, the globalism, neoliberal, global capitalism, everything, the way that it's impacted uh, and made us so fragile, and of course impacted our environment. I believe in regional resilience that then creates that global uh, sustainability as well. So something that I found is that people are totally okay with giving individuals in the military, I am for this as well, uh, giving them their baseline infrastructure, right? They give food that's cheaper, water, housing, education, healthcare, transportation, and access to an environment, right? Like in that, that space that they have. So anyways, I believe that those baselines should be given to everyone in the wealthiest nation in the world. And I would say that the military is quite socialistic in many regards in terms of what it actually gives. And I know many people on this call probably know people who have left uh, their towns and whatnot to go into the military because it was the only way that they foresaw upward mobility. So mm-hmm. why not create a domestic department, kind of what Miriam is fighting for as well, a department of peace uh, within the DOD, right? But like, or just change it to a department of peace. But um, why not form this domestic department that helps with all of those infrastructures? And for the left, I mean, it's brilliant, right? It's like, oh, nobody batted an eye at the almost, it was 800, what, 71 or 72 uh, billion that went into the military budget this, this year round. And, and, and yet we're build back better social infrastructure plan that would be over 10 years. And nobody talks about the fact that it's a one year, almost trillion dollar for the military. So let's just yeah. put all of, let's as the left be like, oh yeah, cool. No, no, no. This is a domestic task force for building resilience at the regional level that helps make sure that food, water, housing, education, healthcare, transportation, and that access to an environment that's healthy is actually there for all citizens. It sounds it sounds like a route that the left could go to just, you know, play into their rhetoric but still give the actual ends that we want. Yeah, I think it's interesting and I'd like to know what people think. You know, I've advocated timidly for a kind of um uh, mandatory service conscription, non-military, you know, but in the same way that you have to serve in various countries, Singapore, Israel, for a period of time, but to do, you know, uh, infrastructure development, planting trees, whatever needs to be done domestically um, for a couple of years before college. I do think that there is this sense in this country that everyone who isn't affirmatively serving like is a lazy bum who isn't quote unquote giving back to their community. Like the only people who do anything for America are small business owners and vets. And that includes now nurses and teachers are now evil too. (laughs) So, you know, when you see how the country has flipped on these historically respected populations, I mean, even the one sixers were mad at the cops, you know, like, so I do think that some of it, isn't just, you know, oh, if we like mimic these institutions and people will be on board because things get p- politicized so easily and so quickly by the right. But I do think it's worth exploring because it's just simply a good idea. There's so much that needs to get done. I would love to see a service core that expands massively our um, child care infrastructure, elder care infrastructure, education infrastructure. You know, we just were talking to um, Professor Kaboob about how, you know, we can limit inflation we can control inflation by actually growing our infrastructure in all of these ways in these fast in the in these four areas that drive inflation the most which are what healthcare education transportation infrastructure and 
I don't know, a fourth one that's like obviously a thing that we all care about on the left, but I can't think of what it is right now. You know, and and so like to the extent that you could shift funds, you know, do fund the military, if you will, (laughs) um, and fund something else, I think that would be, I would like to see someone try. And I would like to see, I'm not familiar with Marianne's, um, uh, how she's framing it. But I, you know, there are people who are critics of defund that say you should just talk about the shift. If you mean a shift, you know, refund or move the funds. And if you want to try that with the military and say, like, why are we spending so much time abroad when Americans need so much work? Let's, quote unquote, deploy folks to uh, parts of the country that are being ravaged by the opioid crisis. I think that's worthwhile. I don't know. Look, there's going to be a lot of people, though, that are distrustful of the idea because they're going to see it as potentially just more military expansion under the cloak of night. And are you going to be rolling tanks into uh, Peoria or whatever? Yeah, and that point makes total sense, and I definitely agree. Um, but in terms of the you know incentivizing these sorts of jobs and whatnot, I feel like it would be uh, it'd be possible to create a force that would be for good. I see your point though in terms of uh, how it could be viewed as an expansion of their powers as well. But by the way, this uh, is just like the jobs guarantee. This is just the Green yeah. New Deal and jobs. Yeah. I mean, it's the same. It's all the same. I, it, whether you know, should Bernie have framed it as? Uh, making that direct direct connection to the military would that have ultimately hurt him because it would have brought up a conversation about defunding the military at the same time we're trying to have a conversation about a jobs program which is kind of popular on its own i don't know maybe maybe we just need to be speaking more about the jobs program you know i don't hear anybody on tv you know at this point bernie included ever bringing that up and it wasn't brought up that often during the campaign to tell you the truth And so this is, I think, the value of some of these third-party candidates running. Like, I don't know if Kyle was ultimately going to say – it sounded like he was building up to saying that it's useful for people like Marianne to run even if they don't win. And I think that we should support them winning if they do run. But I also do think that there is symbolic value in putting these issues on the map in the same way that, frankly, Andrew Yang did you know, with the um, UBI. Whatever you feel about him, like, he managed to popularize an entire issue and, like, a year or two that nobody, I mean, I don't want to say nobody, but that was largely undiscussed before. And 90% of Americans probably hadn't heard of before. So thank you for that curious. I appreciate you calling in and take Definitely. care. Thank you. You too. Uh, Jonathan, what's on your mind? Hi, Bree. Good evening. Good evening. I think that um, on the question of whether it's worthwhile to reach out to the PMC, I'm, fairly ambivalent on. I don't think I've given it enough thought to really provide you a cogent answer. But um, regarding your conversation with Professor Liu, I think I come from it uh, from a I I see it from a similar perspective um, as the two of you, because I'm also decidedly a member of the PMC. Like I work as an actuary, which is basically one of the most PMC careers you could possibly imagine other than, I don't know, I guess being in a hedge fund or like a, <laughs> being like a hedge fund or like, I don't know, a consultant or something. It's okay. But I was anyhow. a corporate lawyer. This is a shame free <laughs> environment. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. But anyhow, um, we should remind ourselves that this is a cohort that really prides themselves on valuing like aggregated data and statistics over like anecdotal evidence and things like that. You know, they're, they're the kind of people that'll have like the facts matter bumper stickers and 
that kind of thing. And, you know, even in my journey, I don't know, you probably don't recall, but I'd mentioned um, on one of my previous calls that from my early high school years through now, I basically went on a 10 year long evolution from like a conservative as someone who was raised evangelical Christian to like sort of a moderate liberal to a leftist um, during my years in college. And I think there is a way, um, at least to the members of the PMC, who I would say are gettable in any realistic sense to, I think, reach out through a data-driven approach, I think it can be in some cases effective. Like I distinctly remember several years ago when I still thought that the Clintons and the Obamas were generally decent people. I heard about the statistic that 90% of the casualties incurred from the drone program instituted by the Obama administration were civilians. And that was just completely Mm -hmm. appalling to me. And I think that, you know, you're not going to hear numbers like that on any mainstream network, which brings me to another point I kind of wanted to see what your thoughts were about is that I don't think you can get any significant portion of the PMC until legacy media has been completely discredited, which I am becoming hopeful about. Like, I think a lot of my friends my age that range from like early 20s to late 20s, none of them at the very least watch cable news, even if I disagree with them on a lot of policy bases. And if you told me a year ago that Breaking Points was going to be like the number one Spotify podcast, I, I wouldn't really believe you. That was like a very shocking but pleasant surprise to learn of this past year. I think there are starting to be some cracks in like the whole edifice of legacy yeah, I mean, media. People are fleeing. They're fleeing. Yeah. I mean, so I don't disagree with any of the earlier callers who have said, you know, the media is a problem and yada, yada, yada. And people who watch it, but like people are watching it less and less. Our generation, well, your generation behind me, it sounds like, but you know, millennials and younger aren't watching this at all. I don't have cable. I'm about to move next month. And I just was on the phone all day with my provider who was trying to be like, you know, you don't want a cable box. I'm like, literally no. <laughs> like for what? Like for what? And so I, I do think that there are some um, structural issues that are really helping, uh, structural changes that are benefiting the left. And so we shouldn't be quite so pessimistic about our ability to change that media climate. But we have to be willing to and ready to exploit it, which is why, you know, part one is we need a left media. But my real point is like a unified left media because I want a, a world where breaking points and bad faith and the majority report and TYT are all saying the same thing. And it's you know, vote for Marianne or vote for whomever it is that is, becomes the left candidate, that's much more powerful than the alternative. I agree. Yeah, that was actually what I wanted to comment on when you said earlier, like, I don't know if this is a wacky idea, but I think it might almost be useful to have sort of like an openly like left kind of like, I don't know how to generally describe it, but like sort of fact checking apparatus. Cause like, you know, the liberal ones, they really just target conservatives and debunking conservative Mm -hmm. talking points. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have the Fox news crowd. They cherry pick all these statistics to discredit um, what the liberal policy stances are. And I just wish if there was, you know, sort of a analog to that on our part of, you know, like the political spectrum, the sort of like anti-establishment, anti-capitalist left, excuse me, anti-capitalist left that really just pointed out, um, all of the 
problems with the corporatist model that we're stuck with with these two. Yeah, parties. look, we have Matt Brinig, but the reality is we need a, we need a cap level funded. I mean, everyone go and I guess get five dollars a month or whatever to the People's Policy Project and get him to promise to hire like. 10 staffers who can just sit around writing talking points for the left, because I'll tell you, being part of the Bernie campaign, it was so lovely to be able to just, you know, walk across the room to the policy department and say, give me some facts on this and like, tell me why this is wrong or tell me why it's stupid that Elizabeth Warren's arbitrarily wanting to cancel only $50,000 of debt. And like, what are the numbers? That's an incredible resource. And it's so hard to be like a one person machine that's worried about every aspect of your presentation without a shop behind you. All of these neolibs, all these conservatives, they have shops behind them. Um, and the individual progressives in Congress, you know, I've had some conversation with conversations with staffers and they feel overwhelmed because the budgets are small for staff. You know, they want their staff to be well paid because, you know, they're socialists or somewhere on the spectrum. They can't hire everybody. They can't hire a million people. And all of their staffers are being forced to reinvent the wheel and do all of their own policy research because they can't just go and take the cap figures and the, the, you know, take take the party line that the Center for American Progress and those kind of neolib institutions take because it's not their politics. Um, yeah, but I think absolutely. that you're, you're right, re-statistics. I mean, coming from this world, you know, in 2016, I was sitting in my office and arguing – so much with my coworkers. I could not believe. <laughs> and they were so imperious and they would tell me black people don't like Bernie. I was the only black person, uh, black attorney at the firm. Black people don't like Bernie. And, you know, three guys named David would line up in my office and tell me how much black people don't like Bernie. <laughs> Literally there were more people, there were more dudes named David at this 12 person law firm than there were attorneys of color number of which was I'm one. sorry you had to deal with that. It's fine. And then I liked some of those Davids, you know, they were my friends, but I was like, my guys, like it, it, I would, I would, I would hit them with stuff. You know, 2016 was a constant, like being on the internet. I was an anonymous person on the internet that was just throwing shit at people everywhere. And I got to say, I think it, it's useful and needs to be done, but also there is some cohort of people where it is this weird, like, spiritual connection to the Democratic Party. It, like, wasn't about anything concrete that you could point to. It was about the essence of what they thought Bernie was. They just felt it was – it's like the body language expert. They just felt that he was sexist. It didn't matter if you pointed out that, you know, the first LGBT rally or whatever happened in Burlington in 1835 or <laughs> whatever he did it. It didn't matter if you pointed to aspects of his record. You didn't, it didn't matter if you pointed out that Hillary Clinton was a Goldwater girl while Bernie was founding a core chapter at the University of Chicago to protest housing segregation. None of it mattered. It was all vibes, no facts. And so that's part of why I like the idea of a vibier candidate and someone who can, you know, tap in to that POC ethos, which although they claim constantly to care about facts and figures and to be technocrats, are really caught up in this like Atlantic New Yorker curated version of what it feels like aesthetically to be liberal over anything constructive or material. I think it's got to be both. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up those points. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Uh, up My next, pleasure. Jason. What say you, Jason? Hello, can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind? Oh, oh perfect. Um, so uh, the reason why I'm calling is because I really uh, appreciated the conversation. 
Um, one thing that I was curious about was just more, of, I guess, through a cultural lens of this discussion, where I felt like a lot of PMCs um, sort of transcended their class, you could say, like they went from working class to middle class to PMC. And I think there's like a narrative within that context where people feel like now that I've transcended my class and I get to be a part of this, there's really no reason for me to have solidarity with anything, you know, as a like like a working class sort of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious about sort of, you know, disaggregating those two narratives or, you know, figuring out a way to present it in a way to people who think that way. Because I was thinking in the context of my own family, because, um, you know, I grew up in a, I was born into a working class family and then my parents worked their way up and now they're technically PMCs. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I had gone to them and I've been like, oh, well, you know, discussed about like working class solidarity, they would kind of look at me with like two heads, like, no, we worked so hard. Like, why should we have solidarity with like those types of people? If if that makes sense. Yeah. So, okay. Two things. One is that I told the story before, so I'll make it abbreviated. There are people that I've had conversations with who say things like that, who really buy into the idea of their own Horatio Alger story and say, well, if I can make it, anyone can make it. And the people who didn't make it must not have worked hard enough. But if you push for like two seconds, that tends to crumble. So, you know, I've told a story about how I was on the road in 2018 covering midterms from The Intercept. And there was literally one Uber left in Iowa. (laughs) Sorry. No, there was one Uber left wherever we were in Iowa. And we all needed to, there were like four journalists and we were all, I think it was like, I think Dave Weigel might have been in the car and it was, you know, a videographer from Vice and then like someone from, I don't know, it was like four different outlets and we all had to share this Uber to the airport. And it was like an hour. We were, it was going to be a long car ride. And this guy drives up in a a sports car that he's like obviously gutting and renovating like a low slung, like black, like 80s style with like red, you know, like black and red sports car. Like, um, you know, and we're all in the car. We have a long ride ahead of us. We, he asks us what we're doing. It becomes political. And he starts talking about how, like, he, you know, it, the system is unfair. It really screwed him. Like, he bought this car to refurbish, but he ran out of money because he was laid off. And now he has to drive this Uber to try to, like, make money. And he's paying child support. And there are all these parts of his life. This is, like, a white guy, let's say, he's in his late 30s. Right. It becomes racial. <laughs> <laughs> something he, he, he says something about how, like, it's not fair for money to be given to you know, these people who don't work hard, these black people who don't work hard. And earlier in the conversation, he had made reference to a black friend of his who was also struggling. And, you know, everyone in the car starts to get all up, like they're going to start to fight with him on my behalf or something. And I was like, can we please not? We've got 45 minutes to go. And I took over the conversation and I asked him about all of the obstacles that he had very clearly described for himself that were in his own way. And asked him why he could see his own failures, economic failures, as a result of the system, but everybody else's economic failures as a result of their own personal inability or laziness or something like that. Failing. And he, and he immediately was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, the friend you just talked about, like, that's your friend. He's like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess that's a fair point. And it's like I, I people bristle and get angry and want to, like, just write off people like that very, very quickly. And then just my experience, we all are so close. And America, people are, are so bad off poorly you know that everyone has someone not that far from them who you know there but for the grace of god go i 
And it takes a real narcissist <laughs> to not see the benefits, you know, that any, anybody's individual benefits have served. So one, I would just say, like, you can often have that conversation with, like, family members, you know, that, you know, people who you love who have are not doing well and move the need a little bit. However, I completely embrace your point that some folks really do buy into this Horatio Alger story because some of my biggest, hardest fights have been with people, black folks in particular, who, you know, feel like the victims of historical marginalization and are doubly invested in feeling very, very proud of what they have achieved. And I get it. Like, I get it. But that the, there's some real pull the ladder up behind me, folks. And, you know, not every PMC is going to get flipped. But the advantage there is also that, again, even people who are relatively well off feel victimized and feel like they're not getting the benefit of the bargain. So even these people I was arguing with, you know, they had their nice townstone bronze that they just bought in Brooklyn and all of this stuff. But, you know, they also had young kids and were freaking out about the cost of education. Yeah. You know, and they were arguing with me about student debt because they had paid theirs off. And I was like, well, what are you going to do about your kids when college, by the time they're 18, it's going to be $200,000 a year. You know, and so there, there's always a pivot because things are so bad. Like, it's, it's, it feels really gross to say, like, it's optimistic that things are so bad. But it's, <laughs> but it's a real opportunity for the left because – and that's why, like, I'm not ready to write off the PMC at this point because things are so bad for so many people. If we were in some, like, utopian, you know, Scandinavian state where, like, most people had it pretty good, I would say, well, screw the PMC. Like, no, there's no point. But, like – the, the whole point of how we define the PMC, even it's not even economic. It's like you went to college. You can be earning $40,000 a year, but if you got a master's degree to be a social worker, then your PMC, it's like, oh, okay. Like that's part of what's so fakakta about this whole system, right. that people who did everything right and jumped through all these hoops and had these measures of education and access and privilege still feel screwed. And are legitimately screwed. And you just have to find the access of attack for folks because everyone has, a, you know, you know, those like memes on TikTok, like no girl has all five. And it's like right. $10 <laughs> in her bank account, uh, a long term relationship. And then we all get out of that one. We all get out of that one. No, like, like nobody, nobody has all five. Like, and not, you know, the ability to pay for their kids education, you know, like the ability to, to pay for health. Right? Yeah. Like no, no American has all five. Right. <laughs> Maybe Bezos. Maybe Bezos. <laughs> but yeah, no, I appreciate I appreciate your uh, analysis and your takes. And um, I loved Catherine Liu. And uh, yeah, I also went to international schools when I was in high school. So maybe oh. another time we can uh, we can share war stories. <laughs> I would love that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going down at, at mine. And um, Catherine off off the camera mentioned that her her dad worked for the U.N. as a translator. And that's oh. you know why I was going to international school. My mom worked for the U.N. for 17 years. So lots to talk about. We'll definitely have, we'll sh we should do like a kind of biographical chat at some yeah. point and just like at hang. Some point, for sure, for sure. Um, but I appreciate <laughs> you, Jason. Thanks for calling. I appreciate your call. Thank you so much. All right. Case Steady QB. Hey, Bree. What's going on? I just want to say thank you. That's the first thing. You know why. And then also I have a couple of notes because I was listening, like um, curious, the, the caller. I agree with him on rebranding the infrastructure um, mm -hmm. and trying to sneak it into the NDAA. Um, I think like, so for example, uh, the, the Hyperloop, I would love for us to have that, you know, super high speed next generation train 
so that we don't have to, you know, rely on airports. And then also, um, Kyle Kalinske, I did watch that clip. I watched the full one, the whole mm. thing, of course, it's mm. me being me. And also, <laughs> I saw the Marianne uh, clip. But uh, and yes, I want to uh, um, do acknowledge that he did say that uh, Marianne might not win, but it would be good for her to run anyway mm. and get up to twenty five percent of the vote. You know, if it was her and um and uh biden that she she would be able to shift the overton window towards the left so that's what he said so i have mm. two questions um for you real quick um the, the first thing is what do you think about marianne williamson running and then i want to ask about the clip the tweet that you um talked about today but let's ask you first about the marianne williamson what do you think I, you know i'm a i'm a big fan and i should disclose that at this point uh She's like my best friend in DC. Oh. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> um, we happen to live kind of close to each other, although I'm nice. moving. And um, I have gotten to know her on a personal level after, you know, the campaign and everything. So nice. I, you know, I'm a big fan of her personally. And I think <clears throat> she combines a lot of the things that I think are needed. There is a certain outsidery <clears throat> posture. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a ability to speak to the spiritual needs of the country, which I know that some people think is ridiculous and frou-frou and hoo-hoo, but I think mm-hmm. a lot of people really resonate with it. And folks, including like Matt Taibbi, who covered her on the campaign trail and actually saw her speak to crowds in disparate parts of the country and saw different kinds of people interacting with her, really understood that despite her seeming, you know, coming from this kind of you know, Oprah universe world, you know, that's kind of elite in some ways has an ability to connect with people that wouldn't be anticipated necessarily from the outside. You know, there's so many things that are different, you know, between her and Bernie, but there are also a lot of things that are the same. And we all know that Trump was rich and an elitist, but there was a certain frankness and trueness to himself, but for better or for worse, that resonated with people. And I think that the same thing might be true of Marianne Williamson. Mm-hmm. And thought, right now, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. I was going to say that with also with no one else really on the horizon, gotcha. uh, and given how people responded to her in terms of like her performance of the debate and her being one of yeah. the most or the most Google name after the debate, and then the mainstream media's I think rallying to get her off the debate stage I think was really telling about the danger mm-hmm. she presented, and I'd like to see how far. Mm-hmm. How 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 scared she can really make those people? I don't know. That would be interesting. I'm, I'm also um thinking about Dan Price, that CEO, that he mm-hmm. um seventy thousand dollars was his minimum wage, mm-hmm. and 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 that allows me to give a shameless plug to the People's Gauntlet dot com, which is an initiative that I have that it actually sounds similar. Curious if you're still listening. You talked about a one place medium where candidates can give their platform. That's kind of um, what the People's Garland is. So I don't want to endorse Dan Price first. Uh, I want to know. I'm not. I don't want to pull a Michael Moore where I'm like, oh, I want Tom Hanks to be the answer to Donald Trump. No, I, we don't know Tom Hanks. Oh, I um, missed that one. Positions. Huh? I'm sorry. I missed. I missed that. We got to get Michael back on the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my, yeah. Michael Moore. Like he was on MSNBC one time, and he was like, yeah, we need our answer to Donald Trump. And we needed to, we need Tom Hanks to run. And I'm like, okay, mm. what does, what's Tom Hanks' opinion on Medicare for All or on any left um, policy? So to go okay, through the people's case, wrong list. Chet, Chet Hanks <laughs> in the White House might be worth it no matter what Tom Hanks believes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, like, I have no clue. So I don't want to pull the Michael Moore. That's my point and say Dan Price. Cause I don't know his opinion on all the other 
leftist um, policy. So he would have to go through the gauntlet so we could see where, where he stands. And then um, the last thing I want to ask you about is um, the tweet today that you tweeted about the, um, you know, the activists uh, being dogged by the media. And I, and I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised that I did not see a lot of ham hogging. You know, I sent you the, the, the one mm-hmm. clip was, a, and that was just a little bit, if, if, if you would so agree just, with me. So just for context, mm-hmm. I, I had tweeted asking, because I saw some people talking about it, the extent to which mm-hmm. these uh, voting rights advocates were getting pushback from the mainstream media and like the K-Hive for criticizing mm-hmm. the Biden White House and Kamala Harris for not doing more for voting rights. And I, I have seen in the past some K-Hivers go after, you know, William Barber even, you know. Wow, um, but I wanted crazy. to see if there were any mainstream, you know, examples of that as I try to schedule an episode with uh, Latasha Brown, hopefully, in the next month or so. Cool, cool. So the, the person I think they're referring to is Reverend James Woodall, and he was the former Georgia NAACP. Uh, I'm looking at a um, a quick still of CNN right now with him there. And I think he was on CNN and I believe MSNBC. So I think that's who they were referring to. And he was talking about exactly that saying that, you know, they were not going to um, that the speech and they were kind of protesting. And this is my thing. I think the activists, at least in this area of voting rights, they have built a big enough coalition amongst normies, amongst, you know, progressives, amongst people like Stacey Abrams, because Stacey Abrams didn't even go to be able to avoid the ire of mainstream media. And I'm wondering if the mainstream progressives are maybe the Bernie progressives, the super left, you know, us progressives, we can learn from that. What you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that part of what I know, look, if everyone decides that I'm a PMC op because I'm going too hard for PMC. Like I completely understand. Like I'm sorry, what does PMC stand for? And I professional apologize. Professional managerial class, a pet professional manager, managerial class, petty bourgeois. Okay. Like I'm an elitist who's looking at gotcha. my own classes. I totally get like everyone should keep, keep their nose to the grindstone and hold me accountable. I, I, I'm not going to ever be mad at anybody for being distressful with <laughs> me given my background. Like I get it, but like I see the media. I see who's in charge. I see the need to convince people that Warren's not the answer that Bernie is when a Warren style candidate gets put forward. And I see someone like, let's say Marianne, who has a little bit more of an ability to negotiate all of those worlds than Bernie, mm. who's willing mm. to call someone on their birthday, who can be in yes. the cocktail party or the wine cellar, if need be, not taking billionaire donations, obviously, but yes, yes. you know, can can talk to those kinds of people without them feeling maybe as attacked as they did by Bernie and like, maybe that's a problem. I don't know, but there's there's a difference between, I think like bending the knee to someone and compromising your values and also being able Mm. to move through spaces without offending in quite the same way, Mm, without attracting attention. Yeah. And, And maybe that's me, you know, trying to thread a needle that doesn't exist. And maybe we should be distrustful of someone who, you know, the arguments we were making around the AOC and the Met Gala is that if everyone's comfortable with her there, then she might must not be a threat. And maybe you can say the th- same thing about Marianne. I don't know. I'll tell you this much. I think her equivocation on Medicare for all, I think maybe right, as of right now, she's probably for it. But during the campaign, there was times that she was kind of back and forth on it. And I think that shows that she does have her um, a foot in the establishment that somebody was advising her the wrong way, but maybe that can be an advantage if she can kind of build a coalition 
on that side. Like all we need is like five, a certain percentage of the normies or the establishment, mm-hmm. something that Bernie, unfortunately, um, I think right after Nevada, he probably should have did that pivot to try to bring in a bigger coalition of normies and, you know, put a hand out to that side of the Democratic um, coalition. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't. So um, I appreciate yeah. you, though, Bri. I, I appreciate you. And uh, you should send me those clips because I don't remember um, the Medicare for All equivocation. I wasn't paying as much attention to mm, some of the chemistry I, I, when they came in. But I would love to be reminded of that. Um, I'll, I'll have to look back. And can I just give my um, email for – I'll be curious, curious um, the person that spoke to persons ago – if you can hit me up on casestudyqb at gmail.com, if you like um, peoplesgauntlet.com, if, if that's something that you, you were seeing, if it's the same vision. All right. Thank you, Brie, for allowing me to Thank do my you. shameless plug. I'm going to yeah. play a little bit of that Marianne clip so I can run and get some water because right. I never drink any after the gym, and I'll be right back. So, so, Marianne, so Marianne, are you considering primarying President Joe Biden? No, like many, many people, I'm thinking very deeply about what's going on in this country. And I realize that the horse race is not the conversation that most matters. You know, to listen to Fox, to listen to CNN, to listen to MSNBC, it's all about left versus right, isn't it? But I don't think that that's the real political divide that most matters in this country. I think that's kind of a cartoonish version of the political divide in this country that makes billions of dollars for political forces and media forces. The real political divide in this country, Jesse, is between the powerful and the powerless. And the powerful few are headquartered in both major political parties. It is the corporate-backed forces, whether it's big pharmaceutical companies, big oil companies, military defense contractors, etc., that are that are obstructing the financial well-being and the greater economic and uh, uh, professional and just personal opportunities of the American people. That's what I would agree with that, that that there's definitely a a big guy versus little guy scenario. And that's always been the case. And that's something this country has to address. In your opinion, as a progressive Democrat, if you still label yourself like that, where do you think President Joe Biden's biggest failures have been so far in year one? Not pushing back. The biggest failures of Joe Biden, to me, are the same as the biggest failures of Donald Trump and Barack Obama and every president in modern history, which is a refusal to take on in any fundamental way the dominance of these corporate forces. I mean, if you look at the actual economic opportunities of the average American, have they really been that different no matter who? That was just one minute and 45 seconds of but I think it's like a 10 or 11 minute interview that I suggest everybody go and listen to because I think she did a really excellent job sidestepping a lot of the, um, isn't, isn't Biden bad, you know, kind of one-sided, uh, attack that Jesse Waters obviously wanted her to come on to do. Uh, and she was able to really reframe it as like a top down, not left, right issue. And, you know, whatever you think about who should run, I think that is exactly the approach that needs to be taken. Um, let's hear from Free Assange. Chris, you are the next caller. Good evening, Free. Uh, uh, hard to follow up case study, so I'll try my best, but, uh, <laughs> damn, he's, he's good. Um, I really liked him on, uh, I don't, I don't know much about his personal, like if he has a podcast or something, I saw him at the uh, uh, General Strike Summit back in mm, November, mm-hmm. and 
and uh, obviously I've seen all his clips that he puts out. He's a he's a, a valuable asset to to people that think the way we do. A real um, resource, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so you know, I signed off for a moment. Well, I didn't sign off, but I stopped listening because I picked up my girlfriend and she had a tough day, and we we're talking for a little bit. So I missed probably the last 30, 35 minutes of, of this call in, but, um, you know, earlier somebody mentioned, I think you, Chris Hedges running, and if that would unite the left and, um, the person's retort was, uh, that you should run and, and I don't, wouldn't dissent from that, but I'm not sure that that's an interest of yours or not. I think you do a great job as a podcaster and, and, in the position you are right now you you know make a lot of forceful arguments and um so i think your value is is great there um not to say you wouldn't be great as an elected member and i would get behind you for sure if if you did in any way shape or form (laughs) but um the one person i always like to bring up is kashama Mm. and i don't know if anybody's brought her up yet in this conversation but i'd be really curious to see you know, the squad has obviously been a, a complete failure um, in terms of bringing actual change in Congress. They've really succumbed to the pressures that that the uh, the leadership has put on to them, especially Nancy. And, you know, we can critique them in a lot of ways, but calling her mama bears pretty exemplary of, of the neutering that's happened to the squad. Um, but I, I'm curious, like, I'm not convinced even Nina would have the backbone to do it, but I think Kashama got into Congress, took Pramila's seat and got mm-hmm. in there. She might be able to lead these people, these squad members to like actually stand up and take a, take a fight or take a stand and, and fight, you know, like when, when uh, AOC came in or when she was first elected, but hadn't, taken office yet she went with sunrise movement to nancy Pelosi's office and was banging drums and she wouldn't mm-hmm. do that anymore not without somebody else you know mm-hmm. leading her i don't think i don't think she would engage in that type of of uh civil disobedience outside of nancy's office well so, we'll see just- i mean to your point about shama we'll be talking to her i'll be interviewing her and chris hedges together tomorrow that's a little scoop Ooh. for y'all for Thursday's episode. So I will definitely be asking her and Chris about this issue of third party challengers in 2024, what obstacles there are. And if either of them, I can ask them if either of them would consider running. Um, I would like to see it be a crowded field, to be honest. I would love to see many, many leftists engaged in debate about what the world should look like, because I think a world where there are many people on the stage collectively act, uh, ad- advocating for some of the same ideas diffuses some of the pressure that these singular candidates like Bernie face on a debate stage of neoliberals who all can kind of collectively scoff at them. You know, I think what was partly so powerful about Bernie in 2016 was that it was a one-on-one, basically. And, you know, Hillary didn't have a whole flank of people ganging up to kind of deride him. Uh as the unserious one. And then by 2020, so many of his ideas had become serious that they couldn't really do that either. Everyone's kind of trying to compete with Bernie. And I think one leftist candidate could be easily ignored and kind of boxed out of things, but a world where there were a lot of people perhaps running on a forward party line or maybe not 
um, that were kind of even ideologically a little bit diverse and diffuse, you know, throw a libertarian in there. So the right has some interest in covering the debate. You know, the Fox News will probably continue to want to have people like Marianne on because they think they're going to beat up on Biden. But it gives us an opportunity to also take our message to that enormous Fox News audience. I see a lot of really um, significant benefit for a lot of folks to be running in 2024. I don't know. What do you think? Absolutely agree with with. But there's this. I, Bernie wouldn't run because of his friend Joe. Um you know, he's, he's, and he's going to be 82 or three at that point. I mean, similar to Joe, but you know, it's hard to have two octogenarians challenging each other in a democratic primary. That's a little strange. It would be a little strange. Um, but yeah, I think more the merrier. It was a little, I, I didn't catch who that interview was with that you just played Marianne Williamson, but I Jesse Waters. Oh, well, that's an unfortunate figure, but still. <laughs> um he said something absurd recently i forget what it was but anyway not to change subjects um i think the more the merrier is is right and uh as far as the question up top um or the question of should we work with pmcs um obviously we should where they fit into the working with us we should definitely work with with pmcs i think Look at Crystal and Sagar. They squarely label themselves that and are that. Even you, to some extent. I mean, I'm very PMC. Are you kidding me? Like, yeah. <laughs> you can't escape it. Because <laughs> the thing about PMC, it's like largely defined by education, education level. It is right. You can't go to grad school and then be like, "I'm not PMC." It doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah, totally, totally true. But you know, where people have class interests or have or class traders and aren't squarely aligning with their own class, then we need to work with them. We don't have, it's not like we have a whole steed of, of backups to align with and work with. We need to build from the ground up and work with as many people as we can. That's why even some right wingers like uh, Jimmy says this, and I know that's going to, you know, turn some heads certain sort of way, Jimmy door, but you know, we're going to have to work with Trumpers, you know, we're, you know, that's half the country. And, and if we really want to build a, a movement and we we have, we can't agree with them on everything, but on certain economic issues, I mean, Trump was to the left of Hillary on a bunch of economic issues and on, on war stuff as well in yeah. 16. And, well, Donald and, Trump voters are just and, like we were saying before, they're Republicans, they're Reagan voters. I don't know why everyone thinks that magically everyone manifests into a completely different human being with different ethics. They're just Republicans and Democrats have had no issue trying to reach out to Republicans forever. It's why third way politics were invented so that they could start their campaigns overseeing the assassination, the you know execution of a mentally challenged black guy and sister soldier people and be like, Hey, Republicans, I hate black people too. come vote for the democratic party. They only, what they don't want to do is actually advance the class interests of working class people across the board to attract working class voters. No, no, no. They just want to use the same kind of uh, identity politics and cultural issues to polarize folks that the right does. And what we need is someone who will, is willing to do the kind of alliance on substantive, positive, constructive lines instead. So better Trump a was that. Trump was that in 16 as far as his election 
you know, or is on the campaign trail. Now he's a, a, a mentally weak individual and he brought in all this, the swampy people that he could find, including John Bolton and, and all the other terrible yeah. people that he brought in. He's just an intellectually uncurious person. Yeah, but it, I think it shows that there is a, there is appetite even on the right for, for economic populism. And, yeah. and I think that that's important and we need to focus on that and, and challenge people on on race issues and on gender issues when they uh, don't align with us and and agree with them and take yes for an answer on economic issues when they agree with us. Well, thank you for that, Chris. Issues. Better so better a, a PMC Left Alliance than the Red Brown Alliance. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, Tucker. Oh no! Thank you for calling in, Chris. You're up next, Tucker. What's on your? Hey, can you hear me? I can. Uh, okay, I just wanted to, it's funny that you have been talking about Marianne Williamson, because that's actually why I called in, because hmm. I saw, like, I've actually wanted her to run for something else since she's ran for uh, president, because I really think that she can make a difference in the Democratic Party, because that's the type of Democrat that really could make a big difference down here in the South, hmm. like, how she talks about spiritual uh, spirituality and all that stuff instead of like Mark Pryor, who was just holding up the Bible saying, this is my North star, like that bullshit, like Marianne Williamson actually believes it. So I really think that if she does choose to run, like I, I'm not sure she said that she isn't thinking about it and all that stuff, she would have to run for something else or at least get more popular because I don't think just running for or running a, in a primary against Biden in 2024 will actually be successful if she's not really doing anything in the meantime. What would you like to see her run as? Run for? Honestly, I know this is a long shot, but maybe she could come down here to Arkansas and run for governor because uh, not usually the Arkansas governor race would be uh, national news, but as you probably know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is the only Republican candidate in the primary, so she's going to be the candidate. So, but what relationship does is, she have to Arkansas? Isn't she just going to get? It doesn't matter. We just need something. She. It doesn't really matter. Like no Democrat that is running right now, like one Democrat who's likely not even going to get the nominee, has any plat like any issues that they're running on. And I've asked them multiple times, like. What are you running on? Just tell me what what are you running on? But I really think that somebody who has national like national ties could come in and just get the nominee, even if they are labeled as a carpetbagger. Maybe we need one here in Arkansas. I mean, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders moved away from Arkansas and then just now moved back to run for government. Right, but moving she away give a damn about is Arkansas. pretty different than like closing your eyes and spinning a globe and putting your finger down on a map and deciding to run someplace. I mean, like, I hear you, but, you know, Marianne is, you know, she's from Texas. She spent time in Michigan. I mean, there are other places, including in the South, that she could credibly lay claim to. Oh, exactly. Like, and she should probably go there other than Arkansas. I, that's just what I would like. Oh, I see. Self, self-interestedly, you would like self-interest. to save Arkansas. <laughs> All right, well, because I, I don't see anybody here in Arkansas that really has anything, but I don't want to take any more of your time. So have a good night. Thank you, Tucker. I appreciate you calling in. 
All right. Next up is Garrison. What's on your mind, Garrison? Uh, Uh-oh. Can you hear me? It was a little glitchy, but you're coming through now. All right. What's up, Bree? Good to talk to you. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation uh, with Catherine. I'll admit that it was also somewhat, I guess, kind of frustrating at times as well. And I have a lot of thoughts, and I'm trying to make sure I'm organizing them efficiently here. But I guess I'd start with, like, kind of asking you. She kind of mentioned, like, the kind of PMC class, like, much of the conversations about, like, the PMC class of, of like news reporters, right, and the people who are commenting on the news and commenting on politics. And she mentioned explicitly Ezra Klein. And I'd love to get your thoughts on Ezra and his show and his politics and like the role it plays in this entire kind of PMC conversation. You know, I don't um, listen to his show with any kind of regularity. I've probably only listened to maybe like four episodes ever. I listened when Tiny C. Coates was on. I listened when Matt Brunig was on. But I can't say that I have a really good sense of his politics outside of the generalized kind of Vox politics and watching him on Twitter, which I feel like he hasn't been on. Maybe he's less active recently. Um, so I, I, I can't say. My impression is that he is, you know, it's the whole Vox. It's like he's a technocrat who thinks that, you know, he's measured and smart capital S smart about everything in a way that kind of um, can disguise the stakes of things. So during the primary, uh, you know, during the 2020 primary, he would kind of frustratingly just try to complicate ideas without really weighing in in a substantive, like ethical way. I think there's a way that that detachment can lead to, an abdication of ethical responsibility. Obviously my ethics are subjective, but you know, we were heading into a pandemic and people are still writing articles, you know, Vox is still publishing articles like, you know, but can we really pay for Medicare for all? You know, like, are we going to hurt the pharmaceutical industry if we make the vaccines free? Hmm. Here's 18 paragraphs. And so that, that attitude, that like that dispassionate intellectualism, I find to be frustrating. But I don't want to say too much because I am not a regular listener the way I am a regular listener of Pod Save America. Should I be? Um, I think that he has like I think he has some great conversations. He brings people on. Like obviously you tuned in for a couple of those conversations. And you know, I think Ezra's main thing is like doing the reading. I like the way you describe him as like a capital S kind of like like he kind of thinks of himself as capital S smart. I think that that kind of tracks as a, a fairly regular listener. I think the reason why you haven't seen him as active on Twitter is because he's been on paternity leave from the mm. New York for a time here. And so probably for like the last two months, he hasn't been that active. But I ask because honestly, like, I think much of the conversation, like I, I kind of like put in my my little call in bio here because I'm literally on this platform for your show. But I put <laughs> I put on there that I'm kind of like being radicalized by your show because, I mean, for much of the last several years, I've been a, you know, quote unquote progressive and liberal, but like, you know, like probably more in name than like in substantive, like policy kind of prescriptions. And so I've been, but, but the thing is like, and so I I say that to say that Ezra has been a really important part of that journey. Like Mm. his show has been really important in helping to expose me to 
like liberal leftist kind of thinkers, people who are at least thinking about this in a way that is far more progressive than the mainstream. And I found that to be incredibly helpful. Now, I'm on this journey authentically, right? Like I want to like legitimately learn like what is the best route to achieve equity for people in my community as a black person, but largely for people who are impoverished. And like, like I, I'm, I'm very genuinely interested in that. And his show has served as like a really valuable kind of gateway to that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I, I wonder if there is space in the conversation for people who maybe serve somewhat of the interests of like this kind of PMC class, sure, but their content as Catherine was talking about content creators, their content, even thinking about Ava DuVernay, like her content has exposed a lot of people to the structural legacies of racism in yeah. in modern terms. And it has served, it started people on a journey that's really valuable. And like you lead a show that I imagine is growing. I'm new here, right? And so like you're probably getting more and more like Patreon subscribers and listeners and all of that. And so it's <laughs> We're getting, you're like, maybe, no, we're, we're getting here somehow. Like we're, we're coming to your work and to the work of other people who think similar to you somehow. And, and I think the journey is kind of important and I don't know. I, I just want to know like what your kind of reflections are. No, you're offering some good pushback. Cause look, th- and this is kind of ironically the pushback I was giving to Catherine where I obviously do think that there is a benefit to these people who are not our, you know, capital um, e enemies. I don't know why I feel like I need to capitalize everything. <laughs> um, you know, I, I look, I listen to pod tape because it's informative, you know, mm-hmm. not just because I'm doing like Intel on what, you know, the neoliberals are talking about, but because, you know, they, they lay out factually what's going on in the world. I listen to the, you know, the daily, like I want to know it's, it's right. useful. It just tells me what happened and I understand the perspective they're coming from and know, how to follow up and get a different view, you know, and, and see the bias. And my, my objection and stylistic objection to Ezra Clyde aside and how I felt like some things were handled during the primary aside, I, I completely understand why people find benefit in listening to his show, because my understanding is that he is able to do kind of more long form, thoughtful, informed discussions. And you find a lot of places and even on the left media, like a lot of folks aren't reading the books you know, of their guests and really asking those kinds of insightful questions. So there's an obvious benefit to that. And it's also why sometimes I feel like I don't really want to go that hard on some of the pod save guys. Cause then in an ideal world, they would just become leftists, <laughs> right? Like in an ideal world, instead of me just saying, ah, there's shitty assholes and everyone should stop listening to their show. There's a world where we could like dialogue and have some Klein style conversations that could at least lead some of them. Like maybe not everyone on the panel, but I think John Lovett and maybe Tommy Vitor, you know, maybe on the, on the spectrum toward the left and like, you know, I would love to have a conversation about like, why do you obscure the, why did you meaning obscure the meaningful differences between these Medicare for all prescriptions during the 2020 primary? Why were you pretending like Warren didn't equivocate? Why are you pretending like Warren's debt cancellation plan, student debt cancellation plan and Bernie's weren't the same? Why are you not talking to your listeners about the fact that Warren has said nothing about medical debt cancellation? Why are you talking, not talking to your listeners about how Warren has zero black people who are supporting her campaign, even though you're doing all of this hand wringing about how Bernie allegedly has a problem with black people? Like These are just facts. I'm not mad at you. This isn't personal. But if you say you share my values the way you do all the time on the show, 
why do I feel like you are more antagonistic to my interests than Jesse Waters? <laughs> you know, you have this huge audience. Like, what are your goals? And, and you can hear some cracks. Like, they are critical. Pod Save folks are very critical. Not very. That, oh, that was way too far. They have some mild criticisms of the Biden campaign uh, administration. Yeah. And they are not quite so in lockstep. I think it it sounds almost like, you know, they worked for the boss and Biden was just a little guy when they were all in the Obama White House. And there's this almost like um, looking down their nose at the Biden administration. I think that comes from having been in the in the catbird seat and seeing Biden still as a VP style figure. But whatever is the root of it, there is some evidence that they are willing to kind of break a little bit and question why his administration isn't doing X, Y, Z on voting rights or whatever it is. And I would like us to be able to dialogue and exploit those cracks because, like it or not, all the millennials that we just said aren't watching cable news anymore, they are tuning into these podcasts. Right. And so to me, the radical project, the most important radical project could be, (laughs) you know, for someone in my position, you know, who isn't an organizer or what have you, to figure out how to get at least one member of Pod Save America to be supportive of a potential left candidate, whomever they might be. Right. And to not just spend the whole 45 minutes or hour of their podcast mocking Marianne or whatever happens in 2024. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's going to be a, that would be a big hurdle for, I think, Marianne. She's like, like she had several like viral tweets of like, you know, her speeches to kind of like psychedelic music and stuff. And so I think people are just kind of primed to make fun. It's probably something to do with sexism, sexism there, but. Oh, absolutely. A conversation for a different day. Absolutely. I mean, you know. Andrew Yang was just as marg- a more marginal figure with, you know, none of the bona fides that Mary, like similarly, no bona fide political bona fides. And he didn't get that sort of treatment. Now, obviously, right. Marianne is a spiritual leader and like that's right. the thing. But, you know, it's the same thing that Jill Stein got. And Jill Stein is not she's a Harvard Harvard trained doctor. Right. You know, she's not a meditation, you know, doing spiritualist or anything like that. And the fact that both. Jill Stein and Marianne were treated the exact same way. You have to ask what they do have in common. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I I had like two other things, but I know time is short. Did you get to hear Biden's speech in Atlanta today? No, I saw everybody tweeting about it, but you know, I was in the gym. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That one, I guess the last thing that I'll say is like, I actually was a pastor for many years and, Mm. So I, I resonated a great deal with kind of your you were talking a little bit about the importance of like kind of this spiritual kind of grounding in the conversation um, around leftism. And I think like people like William Barber, Reverend Barber is like kind of helping to bring some of that. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see any other figures who stand out to you as like like and, and I don't know, I, I'm pretty sure you would know who Reverend Barber is from the Poor People's Campaign. But like, are of course. You, yeah. So are you familiar with any other people who are who are kind of doing doing that work? Well, first, I would say I think William Barber is one of the best messengers. Yeah, he is able to really toe that line and articulate the left's positions from a humanistic, accessible, spiritual, materialist viewpoint. And he is invaluable in that regard. Yeah. I would also say that he needs to come on the podcast and stop dodging. Have you invited? And I would, 
uh-huh. And there was, you know, he was supposed to come and then there was some rescheduling. So hopefully that will still happen. But thirdly, I would like to say that um, I would like him to endorse some candidates. Because all of this fence sitting, like you can clearly, you can read between the lines and I can hear him saying, we need a candidate who supports Medicare for all and to basically describe the whole Bernie agenda, but like won't come out and say it. Yeah. And I understand maybe there's 50C3 reasons or I don't know what's going on that he doesn't want to make endorsements, but like it's do or die. Like yeah. that was 2020 was the moment. That was it. And we're, you know, we'll see what happens in 2024. You know, someone like could could make it and could do it, but no one's going to be more better positioned than Bernie was in 2020. And for everyone not to put everything on the line for WFP to do that bullshit they did, I'm sorry. Like all of these people, that was the moment, and they sat on the sidelines or endorsed Warren or did all this dumb equivocation. Like props. I know we're all mad at the squad for all the reasons, and I I hear it, but like they could have gone the other way with Bernie and the heart attack. And so you know, the people who did the right thing then I will remember. And some of these people who were fence sitters, I would just recommend to them that maybe they should consider behaving differently as the stakes continue to ratchet up. Other figures like William Barber, part of why he's so treasured is that he's a diamond, you know, a diamond, not a diamond dozen, a diamond in the rough. Like there's, there's, I I can't think of anybody else. No, I, I can't either. Especially like you said, like the clarity with which he speaks to these issues and, and kind of that moral high ground that he takes is it's it's really but I, I i hear you on the on the endorsing candidates i don't know if it's really safe for like a true i don't know if it's safe for like a minister to actually do that and it, there's a great deal of critique for like the white evangelicals who are having trump like in their pulpits and like so you kind of i feel like you get caught in the kind of the both sides kind of back and forth thing when you if he were to take that kind of position, but he comes so close that we know. (laughs) I mean, he he could pull a Michelle Alexander who didn't endorse Bernie, but wrote that article in the nation in 2016 saying why Biden doesn't support deserve, sorry, why um, Hillary doesn't deserve the black vote. Mm -hmm. Like I would have liked to see him on cable news in, in 2019 saying, I'm not voting for Biden. And no, I'm not voting for him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, he's hurt black people. Right. You know, right. Joe Biden yeah. doesn't care about black people. Go on. Kanye. <laughs> I want to see William Barber, Kanye Biden on the cable news circuit and see what happens. That's hilarious. I it, I wouldn't put it past him because he, he will go there. He really will. I, I hope so. I mean, you know, I was so you know worried when I heard that he got COVID and, you know, we need him. I, I this is coming from a place of love. But like, I got to tell you, I get a little frustrated I get a little a little frustrated when it feels like people kind of come out too late. It was like also it was um oh like Jesse Jackson endorsing Bernie like right like the day before Michigan. Like I appreciate it, but it's also like there are so few figures that have that kind of moral authority. You know, right. I don't know what Jimmy Carter's up to. I mean, they're all so old and ailing and it's like come on. <laughs> Like, in, in part, we're just not minting new versions of those people. We're still dealing with these same, like, civil rights era icons. Right. Like, where's the new ones? No, literally, I was just going to ask you that question. Like, I can't imagine, I mean, God forbid, Bernie isn't around. I don't know who kind of galvanizes the troops, even if they aren't. Can't Like, a lot of the conversation tonight has been about, like, who can run? But, like, like there's a little bit more to it than just yeah. the there's the kind of the thought leader, right? And like, who's mm-hmm. there? 
lead the the cause. I don't know. I don't know who that person is. They've been co-opted. And look, I'm not naming names or anything, but there are even, even in terms of the civil rights leaders, there's people like Angela Davis around. Yeah. And I don't really, you know, I would have loved to have gotten some leadership from her around the protest last summer or now summer before last, I guess we're saying, um, I would have loved to, you know, hear from, I don't know. I mean, now it's, she's, you know, passed and obviously she was dealing with Alzheimer's, which I didn't know, but you know, the Lonnie Guineer types, there are all of these people who are like around and are quiet and they are, you know, doing Netflix specials and stuff instead. And it's not that they're, you know, to the point about how, you know, that is important. People are learning from that. Like that is true, but there is a version of events that comes out in a left in a Netflix special. There are people that know about criminal justice reform, which is great, but they're also just thinking that doing criminal justice reform, supporting criminal justice reform means voting for Biden, which is the worst possible outcome. I would almost rather they didn't know and heard about it from a candidate that was going to do something about it than feel um, appeased and like they're just doing enough by voting for the uh, the candidate that was endorsed by the former president that has a $60 million Netflix deal or whatever the hell it is. Right. You know, it's you, the system like Netflix is in the business. It canceled all of its political shows. Right. It canceled. Um, what's his face? That handsome South Asian guy. Oh, Hassan. <laughs> With the hair. Yeah. Hassan um, Minaj. Is that his name? Yeah. Um, they canceled like uh, uh, why it's an act show. Right. They got rid like and now we and instead we get we get like the Colin Kaepernick drama. Like bio biodrama, which you know, like fine if that were not the only thing, right? And then we we also have get up, uh, don't get um, don't look up. Like I'm not, no, I'm not no. like completely pessimistic, and I think there needs to be more room for those kind of like satirical projects that have real leftists involved. The fact, yo, but, I appreciate you taking my call. Yeah, thank you for calling in. I I appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, Rika, you are the next caller. Rika? Uh, unmute yourself by pressing the mic in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, Brianna, can you hear me? Yes, there you go. Awesome. It's Rika. Thanks for Rika. taking my call. Um, yeah, of course. What's on your say, mind? Well, first, I just want to say I uh, like live, eat, and breathe your podcast. It's oh, such so a sweet. breath of fresh air in this world of just um, crap, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Um, but